Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Oh, it's so good to be in this chair in front of this mic again, ready to chat with you guys about Luke 16. Um, thank you so much, those of you guys who are uh, who hung with me through that long hiatus. Um, things have just been kind of nuts, and I won't. Uh, I want to dive into the text right away, so I won't go into it very much. But yeah, it's it's just very good to be back. I'm very grateful, and here we go. So take that look out of here if it doesn't fit you. Because it happened doesn't mean you've been discarded. Pull up your head off the floor. Come up screaming. Cry out for everything you might have wanted. I thought that pain and truth were things that really mattered. But you can't stay here with every single hope you had shattered. I uh, I think I've actually quoted that song on a previous episode. But it, I've been listening to it a lot this last week. Because it's, it's been like my happy song. And if you can find the Top of the Pops performance of that song, it'll, it'll change your life if you watch it on YouTube. But... Uh, <laughs> Seriously, in the video, they it's a live performance, and they have a man in a jogging suit dancing in the background. It's 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 absolutely brilliant. Anyway, um, let me go ahead and raise my notes up here so I can read without having to stoop. Uh, here we go, Luke 16, uh, Lo-Fi Lectionary, your podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. We're going to dive into a biblical text here, one chapter of Luke. Um, if this is your first time listening, we just uh, we we read the story as a story, and I'll give you some comments along the way, trying to give you some historical context, maybe some literary context, and uh, we try and just read a Bible text as a story, which is how most of the Bible was written. We have to remember. Um, sometimes we get so quick to picking it apart theologically or spiritually or interpretively or morally or something like that that I think we miss out on. Uh, the beauty of the story, the simplicity of the story, um, which I think is where the most power that the Bible can give us. Um, ugh, I use the word power. I'm, I'm trying to shy away from it. But the, the, the brilliance of the Bible comes from the stories, I think. And if we can get anything good theologically, morally, spiritually, uh, anything out of that, um, we have to get it from the story first. And we can't jump too quickly. And uh, we're going to try our best to do that with Luke 16. Um, again, this is one of the passages um, that, as as I grew up reading this text, I didn't like. Um, there's parts of it that are kind of scary. There's parts of it that were kind of troubling to me. As I've grown older, though, it's become one of my absolutely favorite passages, even though it remains a very challenging and potentially frightening passage. Um, and we're going to deal with that together as we go through it. Um, just to catch you up, if you if, if, if it's been a while since you listened to the last episodes, or if you're joining us for the first time, um, Jesus um, is kind of through the early phase of his ministry. The book of Luke kind of sets up Jesus's work as being something that, uh, at the very beginning, he kind of travels around teaching, doing some healing, stuff like that. Um, kind of the more performative aspects of his ministry. And then Luke organizes the story as to be as, as he starts heading towards Jerusalem, like towards the, what Jesus seems to see as his end goal of his work. Uh, we get these longer sections of just teaching and they happen often, most often within the context of an ongoing debate between him and his opponents. And it's been interesting as Jesus has been going around and doing his work um, both the performative work of, you know, doing miracles and healings and stuff like that and doing actions, as well as 
giving teachings and stuff like that, all these powers have arisen like against him. And it's interesting to just kind of note that some of those powers are are uh, are like spiritual ones, like like the actual forces of evil in the world. Um, and you might not share that same worldview, but in the worldview of Luke's context, you know, um, this is this is how they viewed it. And it's like you know, so demons and evil spirits and stuff like that are rising up against Jesus, but also all of these human forces are starting to rise up and speak more and more loudly and pointedly against Jesus as well. And to, if you note that as being part of the story, I mean, if you look back and go back to the beginning of this is Luke sets it up as this is the story of the the son of God, you know, um, uh, being born like, like, like no other person in human history, you know, uh, this, this person has a, a human mother, but a, di- a divine, you know, father, you know, so, so it's, it's this interesting mix. And it was prophesied from before his birth, during his birth, and during his childhood that this is going to be the person who's going to turn the world upside down and and bring up the lowly and lower the high and stuff like that, um, and do the work this 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 messianic world saving kind of work. Um, that this person is is supposed to be doing good in the world, but everyone from all these corners, all other powers and authorities, are rising up to oppose him, which is just kind of interesting you think you think if if this work was so good and if this work was what the world was waiting for and if this world is if this work is what actually fixes the world that there wouldn't be opposition to that or maybe there would be opposition to it from you know spiritual thing if you believe in that because it's like of course like forces that are blatantly evil will uh will be rising up against it but the the opponents that jesus actually struggles with the most the opponents that actually bring up uh, the most constant opposition to Jesus are actually the human ones. Like people are working against what for Luke's readers might be their own best interest. And it's, it's, it's good for us not to forget that, especially if we're trying to take away any message for ourselves, but even just for, uh, for the story itself, um, people are opposed to what might be the good work of Jesus. So it's, it's evil as opposed to good in the world. (laughs) Like, um, and, and that's an old, old story. It's not something that's just going on right now. It's something that was happening 2000 years ago. It's, um, and we're going to get a glimpse in Luke 16 of possibly what might be the, if you ask the question of what might make someone actually oppose good in the world, Luke 16 might give us an interesting glimpse into that, at least according to Luke. And then we can debate that as much as we want. So here we are. More pointedly, uh, Luke 15 um, had Jesus laying out three different parables where he describes God as being one who seeks out and rescues people, um, like lost people. He uses that kind of language. And then when, when the God figure finds them in every story, the, there's a celebration and there's an invitation to all the already previously found people, people who are already, you know, within this community and close to this God figure to celebrate with him. And it always ends with an open invitation because the question isn't, is God the kind of God that seeks out people? It's, are you going to be the kind of people that is happy when God finds what God is looking for? And when God blesses and shows favor on the people that God wants to show favor to the most. Um, and therefore, are they going to join God in the work of including and serving and caring for others, specifically like social outcasts, religious outcasts, physical outcasts, stuff like that? 
or are they going to stay apart from that? That's that's the context in which we have to go directly into Luke 16. Um, Luke puts all these teachings in a row as part of the same ongoing short piece of story of Jesus's life. So it's directly connected. Um, so um, the as, as we enter the scene of Luke 16, Jesus has just laid out for his opponents and for his students like a different way of going about the work in the world. Like in Luke, there is an emphasis on if you want to join the good work of saving the world, you want to join this movement that Jesus is starting and stuff like that. There's an emphasis on repentance, which is, again, the call to kind of turn around, change your ways and, and be more aware of what we should be doing in the world or something like that, of, of a new way forward, a new way to live, stuff like that, um, to, to turn around from from where you haven't been doing that and to join in on it. Um, and all along this way of repentance, the, there's some themes in the message of, of high and low movement, like things on the ground do well, things up high, you need to be brought down and things that are lowly get brought up by Jesus. Um, so, so Jesus is constantly kind of switching that. And that was a theme again, that was set up from before Jesus was even born in Mary's song. Um, and that specifically this high and low movement as, as the son of God, apparently is going through the work of the world of restructuring things. Um, to be the way that God wants them to be, um, that has very specific and pointed implications for people regarding social and economic status. Um, and the last story left this open-ended. Every every story left in, with an open-ended question. The audience um, for Jesus, in particular in the story, but then I think as Luke then puts these stories in his book, his audience, um, he's leaving the question open to them of, okay, how are you going to respond? to this work that God is doing. And uh, so in light of that, let's jump right into Luke 16. Let me take a sip of my mint tea. Then Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now, now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. Okay, so we get another parable um, right at the beginning. And this parable is another story. Parables, remember, are stories that are usually surprising, that are have like some sort of a Shyamalan twist in them. Um and that illustrates a point either about, you know, the nature of God or the nature of people. And uh, as we continue on in the parable, we'll kind of see where this one lands. Um, so just to begin, there's a manager uh, for for a wealthy landowner. Um, I mean, for this landowner to have a manager, they would have to be uh, exuberantly wealthy, um, you know, not, not just a normal farm owner. Um, and wealthy landowners had slaves or free managers like this. Um, this guy seems to be free. Um, because he's kind of just dismissed from his position and is free to go. Um, squandering. Again, um, we, we heard about squandering a little bit in the prodigal son story. And so Jesus, again, is, is he's like, oh, I just told you a story about squandering. Let me tell you more about a character who squanders. And Luke um, puts these two stories right next to each other and connects it through even that term. So we want to, we wanna, as we read the rest of the story, um, just uh, literary context, um, we want to be checking for ways that this story might actually connect to the previous one where someone also squanders. And remember that squandering in their culture was a quote unquote, particularly despicable crime, um, to waste was, was looked upon as, as really bad, um, uh, digging and begging, uh, were considered undignified. So, um, if you were a captive slave, 
um, like when he was taking captive through warfare or something like that, you might be put towards digging. It was viewed as like the hardest labor that one can do. Um, so it's, it's, it's even lowly f- con- considering the kinds of work that some types of slaves can do. If that makes sense. Um, and then people that line about people may welcome, um, when I'm dismissed as manager, so people may welcome me into their homes. Um, this manager's plan, we're going to hear what it is, is he's going to offer favors to others so that favors will be returned. And in the ancient world, um, especially in the ancient Near East, um, people were honor bound about favors. So if someone did something nice for you, um, you were constantly on the lookout about how to return that favor. Otherwise, um, you would consider like that you yourself are, are not being honorable or going to be shamed. Um, so let's continue on the story and see what this guy's plan actually is. <clears throat> so summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. And the manager said to him, take, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. And then he asked another, and how much do you owe? And the man replied, a hundred containers of wheat. So he said to him, take your bill and make it 80. So, uh, so, so some quick facts for those of you who are, who are math nerds or whatever. Um, 150 trees would be needed to make that much olive oil. That would be, and, and 100 acres would be needed to make that much grain that are involved in the numbers and the stats in this uh, little passage. So he's dealing with like extremely wealthy renters. Um, so again, um, this guy is very clever, this little, this, this manager, um, because even in his showing favor to others and in his showing forgiveness to others, he's starting with the ones that are the wealthiest ones. Um, he apparently is starting with managers who are in debt, but who have enough resources that they might be in need of a good, generous, clever manager. So he's, he's, uh, he's presuming that he's going to be fired. So he's going to the other people who might be able to hire him specifically and showing them some mercy regarding their bills, <laughs> which is very clever. Um, and he's giving away and forgiving the bills against his master's wealth in order to make himself look good. And this is very tricky. Um, so in, in the context, um, there's specific language of the way he phrases it. Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. He's having the debtors, um, write, rewrite the bill in their own hands. So it's, so this might be him trying to make it untraceable back to him (laughs) as much as possible. Um, so he's showing them favor, but he's cheating. And he's putting the responsibility on one hand back on his owner, who's gonna have, who's gonna make less money and stuff like that, um, or be repaid less crops or, or oil. Um, but he's also then putting the responsibility on the debtors by having them write it in their hand. He's he's very very clever. Um, but in, in through the process, it's going to make himself look really good. Let's continue on in the text. And his master. So here we go. Let's see what happens. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. So the parable ends just really quick with that last sentence. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And then Jesus has some commentary on it. For the children of the sage are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Um, so in being so shrewd, 
Um, this, this parable for a long time really confused me. I was like, why in the end does the master commend this guy? He's, he's dishonest, first of all, which isn't something that in the Bible we usually see as being rewarded. Like, like there's all these teachings and Proverbs and stuff like that. that talk about being honest, even when it's hard and stuff like that. And here, this guy is a little bit dishonest and tricky and he cheats people, but he's commended, you know, um, that doesn't seem to make sense on the surface. So for a long time, this didn't make sense to me, but, um, here's the best way I can make sense of this parable. Um, what the guy actually does in trying to create favor for himself, he shows mercy to the debtors, which actually creates reverse favor back towards the manager. Um, he is making the owner look benevolent. Because if you actually read back in that text, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asks him, how much do you Oh, Okay, make it this much instead. Um, he's making his owner look benevolent. Um, in hard times in ancient culture, debts could be written off just like that. And so what he's, he's, he's doing is he's not only making himself look like a clever and graceful person, but he's making his manager look like an incredibly graceful person to these other people that have a lot of resources because they have these big fields and big farms, but who are in debt. Um, so he's making his manager look generous. And so that actually, the cl- the other clever thing about this plan is that what are the master's potential responses? He can either uh, commend this guy, okay, great, you know, you, you're, 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 you're rewriting the bills and making me look good, or you're rewriting the bills and maybe I'll actually get repaid instead of getting nothing. Or he can say, um, you've been squandering my wealth and now you're, che- now you're cheating me and, and showing favor in order to save your own skin. Um, I could put you in jail. Like he could do that. But if he puts a generous um, uh, manager um, in jail, it's going to make him look bad and dishonorable for punishing someone for showing grace to other people. So he he puts uh, the, the master in this hard spot of either um, letting go of some of his resources and collecting less or getting everything he can and possibly looking like a dishonorable or disgenerous um, person, which is just really interesting. So um, he covers for the manager um, uh, and has, has, has a say right in own hand. Um, and it says, um, there was a, a quote in one of the texts that I, that I read that said, uh, that year's losses then um, aren't, okay, so the losses that this guy takes um, in from not getting the full repayment aren't going to be shown as being from mismanagement they're because the owner is going to now look so generous. Okay, what I, what I meant by that in my notes. Um, so this guy's gonna gonna has is going to take in less, and in the end, like the books aren't going to bounce because the manager has been squandering the property. That's what it says at the beginning of the parable. Um, and now, since he's rewriting the books in order to show mercy and mercy and favor towards the people that owe something to him. In the end, like this master of the property could say, oh, yeah, like, um, yeah, I I didn't do so well this year. But, you know, that's because I I showed favor to all of my debtors, to everyone who owed stuff to me. Not, um, oh, I didn't take in so much this year because I hired this guy who was a bad hire and he squandered a bunch of my property. So he's actually, in a sense, also um, not only putting the master in a hard place of whether to fire him to make him look dishonorable or, or to get angry about the generosity he's shown. But he's also putting him in a, in a good place that now he can say, oh, now the, the, the books, 
don't balance, but we can say that it was because we were being so merciful and generous. Like, like master, you're not going to get what's owed to you, but that actually you can, you can, you can rewrite that to be a narrative that makes you look so good. (laughs) This guy, this, this manager, this, this, uh, squandering, but shrewd manager is very, very clever. And now he's setting his manager up to not only not look bad, but to actually look really good in the community. And so maybe that's why in the end, the master decides, okay, I'm going to make the choice that not only um, makes me look good, but keeps me from looking bad. Um, And that's why he commends the dishonest manager in the end for acting so shrewdly. Um... So what is this parable about? Um, We get this phrase about dishonest wealth. In Jesus's view, um, this has come up a couple times in the book of Luke already, um, but here Jesus, again, um, kind of uh, reiterates this view that everything that we have, according to his view, is from God. Um, So all the crops you have, all the wealth you have, the land you have, the family you have, everything isn't really yours. It's God's. And so therefore, at best, we're all managers um, as, as human persons, because everything we actually owe back to God in a sense. Um, and so if, if, if that's the framework of the world that we're working with, we have to look at, at how from God's perspective, people are going to use God's stuff. And in this parable, um, Jesus is putting out the, the line that, okay, the best use Jesus thinks for how we use God's stuff is to make friends and to give it away and to show mercy and not, claim things that come back to us, to not squander it on one hand, but also to not be so hard and cold with it that we um, aren't good towards other people or take opportunities to be good towards others. Because in the end, the the master is willing to overlook the squandering, you know, the sins of this manager because the manager also used the master's things to make him look good in the community, to break the rules to, in the end, make the master look like a good and generous person. Like, from Jesus's kind of worldview, you can't kind of outgood and outshow favor God. Um, so it's going to look like cheating, but go ahead and do it anyway, which is just kind of interesting. So why is Jesus telling this parable to his audience? It's a parable about repentance. It's a model for these religious elites that Jesus has been in opposition with the last couple chapters. Um and he's saying, look, what you have isn't yours, it's, it's, it's God's. And if you want to be God's people and neighbors, if you want to be the kind of people that turn and do the right thing and join in the celebration when God is showing favor and goodness to others from Luke 15, um, you have to view everything you have as not your own. And you don't keep it for yourself, you're not supposed to squander, but you should use it to make God look good and not make yourself look good. Um... And it's interesting that Jesus is telling these parables over and over and over again. We have to remember that in this ongoing conflict, there seems to be this belief on Jesus' side that these people who are doing it wrong in the world still have time. They can do something. They can fix it. They can repent. And he's kind of fighting against them to fight for them, in a sense. So we we do see a strong connection in this parable immediately to both Luke 12 and Luke 15, where we get other parables about management um, and about repentance and about squandering and about... um, repentance and stuff like that. So the faithful manager in, in, in Jesus's point of view is the one who makes sure that all the other servants are fed. That's, that's the message we get from Luke 12. Um, not one who beats and takes from and keeps the wealth for themselves. So it's a, it's a, it's a question of, do we squander what we have on ourselves or do we squander what we have 
on others for their benefit. And Jesus seems to side on squandering for others is actually something that will be rewarded in the end and something that um, won't be. Um, and uh, so we get a connection again to the theme of this parable of the loving father. Um, uh, everyone is invited in and everyone's been kind of warned that, yeah, you kind of need to repent and change, you know, as we see happening with the older son in that parable. Um, you know, the older son, everything I had was yours. And so you can't get mad when God, when the father shows favor to the, to the younger son. Um, so we have to remember that Jesus has been going after folks nonstop the last number of chapters. He's trying to win his enemies over. Let's see what happens next. Uh, Jesus continues on in his teaching. Uh, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If you then have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Um, so before we move on to the next little scene, this is how Jesus kind of encapsulates the message. Um, God is the master. All of us are just slaves, servants, managers at best. And if everything we have is God's, then everything we have in a sense is kind of dishonest wealth. Um, and it's only really dishonest if we think that it's ours and claim it for ourselves and not claiming it for God's or the world's, you know what I mean? If we think that we all like earned this and therefore it's ours to do whatever we want with, there's a problem with that according to Jesus. Um, so it's a question of what are we supposed to do? What are people supposed to do with what we have if we get anything? Um, and the manager in this parable was once selfish and now he's giving away, even if it's for a selfish reason, he's giving it away. And Jesus seems to think that that's a better way. Um, so like the story of the younger son, uh, where Jesus uh, has the younger son returning and giving this like really lame um, repentance speech that doesn't actually admit fault, but he just wants to be fed again. Um, Jesus seems to have this point of view that for people, they can't really do the best thing. We're, we're just kind of so, we struggle so much with selfishness at our core. Um that the best we can do is is do the right action, maybe even for the wrong reason. So for your own selfish good, go and be generous. <laughs> it's kind of the message of both these stories. Um, and so for the wrong motive, these characters end up doing the right thing by making the owner look good in this master-manager story. And so Jesus says, if we are like the manager, then we can either selfishly keep our stuff, and that's the squandering, or selfishly give things away. And the better choice, at least, is, is to selfishly give things away. And Jesus views that as the faithful response to what, to, for, for the question of what do we do if everything is God's. Um, so we should be selfishly generous is the kind of the, the moral like lesson that Jesus is kind of teaching with his people. Um, so again, just kind of note as, as a storytelling thing, Jesus doesn't seem to have a really high view of human persons, <laughs> at least in this context. Um, uh, so there becomes a problem for Jesus's audience if they think that everything they have is theirs and are therefore protective, kind of like a worldview of scarcity, and therefore it's it's ours only for us. Um, Jesus's response, go give it away. Go make God look good. Offer favor to everybody, even if it looks like cheating or or you're giving away to, to people who don't deserve it. You know, the father in the last story does all these things to be generous to his younger son that would make him look terrible in the community, or it actually maybe have, um, have punishment consequences coming for the father even, but he's willing to be so generous towards his younger son because he just loves his younger son that much. Jesus in this sense is radically inclusive, even to the point of it being scandalous. But he actually believes that in the end, 
God is going to approve of those kind of scandalous, generous actions, um, at least way more so than the than what Jesus thinks is the true scandal, which is being cold or selfish or keeping it all for ourselves. Um, it's not sound financial advice that Jesus is giving his audience, but it is advice on how to create and be in the kingdom of God. Um, and then Jesus wraps it up with this kind of very troubling uh, sentence at the end. Um, Jesus very rarely draws a kind of line in the sand of saying like, okay, I'm radically inclusive, but here's the one thing you can't do. You know what I mean? Um, but here he does it. He says, you cannot serve God and wealth. So back then there was actually um, some historical precedent of slaves being uh, owned by two masters. Like if if a slave was part of a family inheritance, that would mean that if there were multiple sons in the family, that some of them would have to share ownership of a slave. And he just kind of lays out what was probably a very typical thing of like, yeah, if you slave, if you if you see a slave serving two masters, odds are they're gonna love one and hate the other. They're gonna love whichever one is is nicer or treats them better or whatever, and be therefore more devoted to one and despise the other. And in Jesus' point of view, he's like line in the sand, either God or wealth, you know, God or money, God or power. Um, you can't do both. And we need to take note here that nothing else in the context of Jesus's teaching so far has been spoken of as being so oppositional to the kingdom of God than money and the power that comes with it. Like that's, that's a storytelling thing. There's no other moment that we've seen really where Jesus steps up and says, okay, guys, you know, um, gossip, that's a sin. You know, you can't serve God and gossip, you know what I mean? Um, or you can't serve God and participate in this kind of sexual sin, you know what I mean? Or something like that. Um, no other thing does Jesus speak so, um, toughly about, or is being so poisonous towards human souls and our ability to do what God wants us to do in the world as wealth. Um, and that's gotta be very challenging um, for Jesus' audience. And it kind of points towards um, what Jesus sees as being the problem with a lot of people who are rising up in opposition to him. Um, let's continue on in the story because this is actually going to continue. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, <laughs> heard all of this and they ridiculed Jesus. So Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts, for what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. So, um, as far as we can tell from historical records, um, Pharisees, um, many of them were in the leisure class, but most of them were actually working class people, um, maybe higher working class, because they would have had to have time to put down their work to study the scriptures a lot more and go to the square and debate the law, you know, stuff like that to, to have at least some leisure time. And some of them were high class folks, but most of them were working class. Um, so the Luke's comment here where they were lovers of money, um, uh, it could be that he's saying, yeah, all, all these Pharisees had it, or maybe just in the context of this story, the Pharisees that are present, you know, are kind of lovers of money or something like that. Um, so that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, 
But Pharisees being lovers of money, and then Jesus carries on of, of God knowing what's in their hearts. This is actually a popular Old Testament concept that's brought up in a lot of language. There's a, uh, a text in the book of First Samuel chapter 16 where it's like God looks beyond the outward appearance, you know, um, and knows what's going on in people's hearts and minds and their souls, you know, um, whereas people have a hard time apparently telling what's really going on. Um then he has this language about being prized by human, you know, things, something's prized by human beings and something's prized by God. Um, it's the language of treasure, which we've seen used in some other teachings of Jesus earlier, you know, like what, where your heart is, there your treasure will be, stuff like that. Um, and wealth at the time was seen as like a neutral thing. Um, you know, money is just a tool and you can use it for good or bad, you know, or whatever. Um, but here, Jesus kind of doesn't seem to see it as neutral. It's something that actually takes people away from God and sets them against him. Because the Pharisees, being lovers of money, heard all of this. They ridiculed Jesus, and he like has some hard teaching for them. God knows your hearts. Um, and what you are prizing is actually an abomination. Um, so it's not just like that it's a neutral thing. It's like, no, this, is, this thing, you know, is an abomination. Um, an abomination in Old Testament context is something that would make someone unclean, like unworthy to be close to God, problematic to God or the community even. And here Jesus is like, oh, like you often think of these things like sex or unclean foods or idolatry, worshiping the wrong God as things that are abominations, because those are kind of laid out very clearly in the Old Testament law. Here Jesus is like wealth is also in that list of things that make you an abomination or that are an abomination and that has big consequences for you. Um, wealth then is something that can actually signify that you aren't one of God's people. You don't belong in this community. That's tough. Um, the prophets in the Old Testament often taught in ways that talked about, you know, um, the economy, you know, and they, they criticize strongly economic behaviors that harmed poor people, like that oppressed people that cheat when people were cheated in the market. There's a lot of prophets that call out against that. And Jesus here is, 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 falling in line with that tradition, but is emphasizing it in a, in a really hard and challenging way, especially for his audience. If people in his audience are quote unquote lovers of money. Um, sit with that for a while. That's tough. Let's continue on in the text. Uh, the law and the prophets were in effect until John came, Jesus says, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed and everyone tries to enter it by force. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to be dropped. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And anyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Um, so little, little, little commentary about Jesus on the, on the nature of the law as he's continuing it. Um, again, he's, he uses this phrase, the law and the prophets, which would be a, a term to just summarize, okay, all of our writings so far, like all the Jewish scriptures, all that um, Christians would call the Old Testament, all that Hebrew people would just call the Bible, you know. Um, He's using a summary term for all of these writings were in effect until John came. Um, it's, it's an idea that was kind of popular at the time that kind of this prophetic age that people were in um, was ending or had ended already, um, but maybe had reawakened with John, who comes as a new prophet for the Messianic era. Um, and we've seen that in the context of the book of Luke. Like, like Luke, John is pronounced to be a prophet to usher in the way of the Messiah. Um, so it's, 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 it's a new thing that's part of a tradition, but that's also new, like it's going a new way. Um, and, uh, just, just some fun, uh, uh, history and, 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 and Bible stuff here. Um, it's easier for one, for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke with a letter to be dropped. Um, that word for letter, um, 
is the word Yod, um, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there is actually um, uh, a little um, historical story, um, like a folklore story. Um, the Yod, um, uh, in the context of there's an Old Testament story where someone named Sarai has her name changed to Sarah, which means that the Yod got dropped. Um, and there's a little a little folklore story from Jesus's time where it was like the Yod um, went to God and complained about being taken out. <laughs> um, hey, I'm being lost from my place in 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 the scripture, you know, um, and in the story of the people. And so the Yod then um, gets uh, added to the name Joshua, which is actually part of Jesus's name, um, to to preserve its place back into it because you know the, the the heavenly court decides oh no yeah we, we can't lose a letter even the smallest letter of the law so let's find a place to add it in boom you're in joshua which is just a fun little story to kind of imagine um and uh and here jesus is commenting on that it's easier for one little letter you know um it's it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the stroke of one letter to be dropped um and that little folklore story is a commentary on the sacredness of the law. Not even one small letter is too small to lose or ignore. And Jesus is 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 saying, "Yeah, I, I'm 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 in agreement with that." And then he gives as an example, like this isn't a, he goes into talking about marriage and divorce and stuff like that. But it's not like this is in the context of, "Hey, Jesus is like, oh, all you guys really need to learn what I have to say about marriage and 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 adultery and divorce here." He's kind of just using that as an example. Um, and so in Jewish divorce law, up until then, men could divorce women for, for almost any reason. They could just kind of write a, a note and, and, and drop a woman from their, from their life. And women couldn't. Um, and so um, many rabbis and, and teachers and commenters on the law disapproved of trivial or slight divorce. Um, and so Jesus, in commenting on it, um, is uh, staying within the tradition where he's actually... Um, this teaching, and we could actually argue how it's still problematic, um, but anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and who marries a woman who's divorced from her husband commits adultery. Um, sounds really harsh, but actually at the time, um, upholding that view of marriage and divorce was actually some, a way to protect women from being victims of awful men who would just like dump their wife whenever they felt like it. Um Maybe not what how we would view protecting women today, but at the time, um, uh, it was maybe the best they had, which is kind of weird. Um, yeah, I, I won't jump into that well here. We could talk about that more uh, in the future if you would like to. Um, but Jesus here actually intensifies the Jewish um, law that comes through Moses. Um, he's commenting that divorces are invalid in God's sight, like just dumping a woman whenever you want to. Um, if that's the way you're going to divorce someone, that's invalid in God's sight, Jesus says. Um, uh, and it's 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 him giving an example of we're not going to dump and give up the law. In fact, we're going to intensify it in this in the way that I'm ushering a new way forward for the kingdom. Um, and we're not taking a chance to give. Uh, he's not again. He's not giving an extensive teaching and thorough teaching on divorce and marriage. He's using it as an illustration of the law not being lost, as he brought up um, about the the letter not being given up. Um, and he's using this, I think. Because um, it's connected to the context earlier of him giving a teaching where he's intensifying the laws and the view um, regarding money and the economy and and how we view how persons in his audience are supposed to view what they have from God and how what wealthy people are supposed to do. He's like, oh, it sounds like I'm changing the law, but actually, no, I'm not giving up the law. I'm just enforcing it and emphasizing parts of it and taking it a little bit further. Um, 
just like how um, I'm going to emphasize and take a little bit further this law regarding um, marriage and divorce. Um, so that's kind of interesting. It's Jesus kind of using this other topic in order to defend how, what he's doing about wealth and, and law. Okay, and here we go. Um, the rest of the chapter is this other parable um, about um, where he, Jesus is going, going to emphasize or show why he thinks um, this talk about law and wealth and stuff like that is so important. Let me take a drink. Here we go. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what would fall from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. What a way to start a story. Um, uh, uh, I mean... If uh, if you went to a church on Sunday and your preacher started with this, <laughs> that's a that's a really good uh, kitchen conversation. Let's let's stick with the text though as much as I can. Um, so Jesus is starting a story um, with two people, and they're in contrast, um, and it's going to be an afterlife parable, which was actually a popular format. And here, um, it's it's a popular way for rabbis um, to teach teachings about how we should be living now by being like, ah, one day in the afterlife, like this is, you're going to see the consequences of it. Um, uh, especially when teachings were kind of hard to see how they would play out and why a certain way would be better. Um, they would kind of lay out, okay, this is what, you know, they would paint a picture where consequences happen later to talk about how actually to clarify how, what, how things should be working now. Um, and there was a popular, uh, parable at the time of Jesus about a rich man who's really, really rich, but does one good deed, like one good thing. And in the afterlife, after this man dies, he's like invited up into God's kingdom because he did oh, at least one good thing. Um, and that was a story that maybe doesn't have such a big, powerful twist. But again, with Jesus's parables, we should be expecting a twist. We should expect to be surprised somehow. And so as we're going to read the rest, let's see if Jesus has a big twist. But here we go. Setting up the story right now, there's two characters in it. There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man, we don't get a name. The poor man, we do get his name. A poor man named Lazarus. And by naming the character in the story, Jesus is already having a little bit of a twist, laying some groundwork for what's going to happen. The poor man is honored a little bit higher because we get his name. And the rich man is not. He's just like a generic rich man. But the poor man is like remembered by the people who created the story. You know what I mean? Um, we don't know anything about the circumstances for how either this guy got rich or how Lazarus got poor. So therefore, kind of like, that's not important to Jesus, how they got there. What's important is where they are right now today. Um, oh man, I just spilled my tea all over myself. <laughs> I'll smell like mint today. That's fine. Um, so the rich man, what we know about him so far, um, he's dressed in purple and purple was an especially expensive color for apparel. For, for apparel. Um, it would take 10,000 shellfish crushed to make a single gram of purple dye. So there's a certain shellfish that they, someone one day found out, hey, if we crush it, we get purple. Um, and because it was so rare, then it became something that only rich people could afford and therefore became fashion for, for extremely wealthy people to show how extremely wealthy they are. Um, 
So he's really rich. He's got um, a robe that that is dyed by shellfish, um, which would also make it smell, which is kind of an interesting idea of wherever a rich person walked, you could tell that they were coming or that they were in the room, not just by the color, but by the smell. <laughs> um, and that we know this rich man uh, feasted sumptuously every day. So every day this rich person has more than enough. And then in contrast, we have Lazarus, the poor man. Um, who's named, which is a surprising detail. We wouldn't get low people named in stories. Um, And that he lies at the gates covered in sores. Um, So he's in desperate physical need. Um, He longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Um, So he's, he even crumbs he would, he would, he would die for, you know? Um, And then he's surrounded by dogs, dogs who would come and lick his sores. And that sounds like I always thought when I read the story, I was like, oh, the dogs are nice to him. They come and they lick his sores. Like they're coming and caring for him. I, after doing some research, I don't think that that's really what it is. Dogs are an unclean animal. Like it would be like, like us saying like rats would come and lick this guy's sores. Um, we wouldn't be that as, oh, they're taking care of him. We'd be like, oh, gross. You know, like it's a, it's a further sign of how desperate this person is. This person is so poor and they're so hungry that they don't have the energy to, sh- to stay away from the unclean animals so they're constantly remote ceremonially considered unclean because they're having contact with these animals um and the tongues as they lick the sores would actually sting so it's like these unclean animals come and lick this person's sores this person is in constant physical agony and is laying at the gates of this rich man's house and what's presumed is that this is allowed to go on The rich man is inside feasting sumptuously every day and is allowing starvation to go on at his gates. Let's continue on in the story. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where the rich man was being tormented, he looked up. And he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, there is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. Okay. (laughs) Um, The poor man dies first, and is not buried. We don't get a mention of his burial. Um, Everyone in good Jewish culture at the time in the ancient world, receives a burial. Beggars, sick people, unclean people, bad people, everyone gets a burial because it's the community's way to show that they are following the way of God by respecting human life. And we don't get a burial for this poor man. This would be seen as terrible for the community to have done to this poor man. So this is a community response to this person's plight. This person has been left in agony every day. 
And as the figurehead or the or or the the wealthy person in the area, this this rich man would have been expected to be the benefactor to to make sure that this burial happened. He would be the figurehead for the community. And they should be the leader, the patron, the benefactor, but this guy is not. They just let this man die and stay. But they are carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. Like God steps in and the angels will be the benefactor when no human person will. And this is a, uh, to be carried away by angels is a popular image for what happens to righteous people after they die, like in these, in these afterlife parables. And so they aren't cared for by the community, but they are cared for by God. And, uh, they're, we, we hear this as played out with the rich man, but, um, the fate of the poor man is that they're carried away by angels to be at Abraham's side. Um, a popular view of the afterlife would be to sit with Abraham, who is the, the father of the Israel community. Um, uh, and they're at a, a banquet scene. Like heaven is talked of as being like a, 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 a heavenly banquet. Um, you know, a place where everyone can sit and eat and enjoy being together in the community. It's a communal um, picture. And it's the end place for quote unquote true Israelites is to be at this heavenly banquet with Abraham. Um, and so your involvement in, in salvation, your welcome into the kingdom is, is only through the community and you're invited into a community. It's not like a personal salvation. It's a community salvation. Um, and so the question for people who are considering their future consequence, their future afterlife, their judgment or whatever was to ask the question, am I part of the right people? Um, because I want to be part of the communal banquet. Um, and so understand that this is why Jesus is so often criticized for being part of the wrong people. Oh, Jesus, you hang out with all the wrong people, tax collectors, sinners, poor people, sick people, stuff like that. Because it's like, you're, you're not part of the right destiny in a sense. Um, but this poor person in Jesus's parable is invited to be by the side of Abraham. Uh, he's given an honored place at the banquet, leaning literally like against Abraham's side. Um, and that's what the poor man, that's what Lazarus gets. The rich man dies. And in some version of the afterlife, when people go to go to Hades or go to Gehenna or go to hell or something like that, when they go to a negative afterlife, um, the, the language used is that, is that as angels carry away people to the kingdom, um, that demons would come and take away the, the, the body of the, you know, or the soul or whatever of the, of the people who go to a negative afterlife in Jesus is telling the angels are there for the good part, but there's no demons involved, um, in his version as well. Like the, it just says, um, the rich man also died and was buried. He receives the community respectful burial, but boom in Hades where he's being tormented. (laughs) Like that's the next sentence. Um, it should be shocking. Um, and that kind of makes me laugh because uh, uh, anxiety makes me laugh. Um, so in contrast to other popular parables, this rich man has done, apparently from what we've heard, no good deeds. Not even one, like we don't get from from him as far as we know. Um, and he's not shown himself as being one who, seated, who saw himself as being responsible for Lazarus, for the poor person sitting at his gates in agony every day, or giving him a burial, at least when he died. Um so for, uh, for all we know, this rich man has, hasn't done anything good ever. And so this rich person dies and goes to Hades. Um, Hades, again, is Greek language for a resting place of the dead. So um, Jesus is quoted here as using Greek um, concepts of death in his moral teaching. Um, it 
it could be there's a possibility that Jesus would have used um, uh, a Jewish um, language for it, but maybe Luke, in writing to a more Greek audience, kind of swaps in Greek concepts here, or at least Greek language for Jewish concepts, maybe. Um, we don't really know. Um, but he uses the word Hades, um, and Hades is the, the, the resting place of the dead. Everyone went to Hades. Um, the fire image for it, um, I am in agony in these flames where he's being tormented, is something that actually comes from a from a Jewish concept um, or one idea, because there is there is competing concepts of uh, of the afterlife, which is more in line with with Gehenna or Gehenna, um, where there's fire as as part of a resting place of some dead people. Um, so here in you know just a couple sentences, there's a weird mix of both Greek and Hebrew concepts of death, or at least language of death. And again, this could be something that Jesus is doing intentionally, or it could be something that Luke is doing intentionally in how he frames Jesus's teaching. We, we're, we're not sure. Um, but what we do know, looking at the story itself, there is an inversion of status. So again, this has been a constant theme in Jesus's teaching in the book of Luke, and even in the way that the story plays out in the, in the, it, outside of the teaching in Luke. And it's stark here. Like as Mary's saying, the high will be brought down and the low will be brought up. This is like the most frightening kind of portrayal of that, that we get. Um, in, in any of the parables, I think at least, um, because the low person is brought up to be set sitting at this kingdom of God, heavenly banquet, finally feasting sumptuously himself, being cared for and welcomed into a community in a way that this person has not been welcomed. And the rich man goes way, way down to a place of torment the, where the people who had it good now have it bad. And the people that had bad that had it good. And Abraham says, there's a chasm between them. So there's no more crossing over. Um, uh, and this is in contrast to regular expectation of the time. Um, uh, the judgment in Jesus's teaching in his point of view, isn't based on having correct theology. It's not on who has correct faith determines where you go when you die. It's not on who's part of the right national heritage group or ethnic group or anything like that. It's not based on what you did in your life to be part of the right economic status or social group. It is in this parable, at least this singular one, based on what your economic status was and how you behaved towards people who had it worse than you. It's the only way that people are judged in this parable. Um, that's the only criteria to determine whether you're going to go to the place of torment or to be welcomed to Abraham's heavenly banquet. Um, and so then, interestingly enough, we get dialogue <laughs> between the rich man and Abraham. And this rich man's response, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and come and cool my tongue for I am in agony in these flames. Don't miss this here. In Jesus' story that he's telling people, he characterizes a rich man by, by having him in the story in a place of torment. And he's so sorry for himself um, that he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to comfort him. And not just to comfort him, but if Lazarus is going to go comfort him, that means he wants Abraham to send Lazarus to the place of torment in order to comfort him. The message that the rich man is saying is send this poor man to hell to make hell better 
for me. This guy has not learned the lesson at all. It's not a matter of like, this guy was mistaken. You know what I mean? This guy is self-centered to the core so deeply. Like he's not repentant in, 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 in Hades. Like the punishment is not convincing him that he did it wrong or that he, you know, made a mistake or something like that. Um, because his worldview, his view of himself, his view of other people is still such that even as he's in agony in flames, experiencing the, what, what you think might be seen as the consequences for his actions in life, he wants poor people to be in hell with him. He's literally bringing people out of the kingdom of God to stand with him in hell, to serve him. That's Jesus' story about what this rich guy is like. And so coming right immediately after this, this part where Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve wealth and selfishness and greed and power and money and still be part of the kingdom of God. Because here this guy is in hell, still trying to be the master himself so he can get whatever he wants. He's commanding Lazarus to be sent like a servant and a slave to him. So the qualification for getting into the kingdom of God, half of the answer is, well, it's how you treat the poor, Jesus is teaching his audience. Like the, the people, this guy didn't treat the poor well, and so therefore he goes to Hades. But the other half of the answer in this parable is people who think it's okay to leave other people in poverty and for people to be in agony while they enjoy comfort and pleasure and ease. According to this parable, or in the context of this parable, because parables aren't literal, you know what I mean? So we have to be careful about making, you know, judgments or consequences or jumping from them to interpretation. But people in this parable who leave others in agony while they enjoy comfort won't get into the kingdom of God. They won't get it. Like they're not going to repent. They're of the wrong way. They aren't kingdom people in that sense. So the question Jesus is posing to his audience is, you can't be high status. You can't be a master of others in the kingdom of God because it's not for you. You're a manager at best. And so the question for people who think that they're a master and other people are here to serve them, other people deserve less so they can get better, is do you even want to be in the kingdom? And do you want everyone else to enjoy what you have? Because in the kingdom, everything's going to be equal. Everyone gets the favor. You know what I mean? Um, let's continue on in the text because there's more. <laughs> there's more. Um, the rich man said, then father, he's talking to Abraham, then father, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into the place of judgment. Um, I'm sorry. So they might not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So Jesus, again, um, is defending his very high view of the law and the prophets. So Moses and the prophets, again, a summary term for all the scripture up until then. Um, And Jesus here, in the context of this parable, seems to believe, um, or Abraham says in the context of this parable, that, hey, Moses and the prophets, all the scriptures they had, said it enough. It should have been clear if they read it, that treating people this way is not okay. And and that they should be treating people a very different way. Like, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. You know what I mean? Um, And then the rich man's response is, well, if someone comes back from the dead, if something very miraculous happens, then they'll repent. Like, no, no, reading, reading the books, reading the scriptures aren't enough. They need someone to come back from the dead. And Abraham says, oh, no. Oh, if they didn't listen to the scriptures, they're not even going to be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Um, they, they, they've been given enough to make the right choice and they've chosen their way. And so, um, this is the end of the chapter. Um, Jesus here talks about, uh, resurrection, um, as being some sort of proof of what people that would maybe convince people what the kingdom of God is and how to get in and how they should be living in this world now and stuff like that. And Jesus has already done, um, a whole ton of miracles in, in the book, um, and people have already consistently stood up to oppose him, uh, both both evil spiritual forces as well as both evil human forces. Even after seeing him do all these amazing things or hearing the stories about it, they aren't convinced and they want to oppose him. And so the question for Jesus's audience is, why are they opposing him? And that's what comes up in the themes as Jesus is, is arguing constantly to win these people over. And according to Jesus... In this chapter, in Luke 16, why are people opposing him? Why won't some people get into the kingdom, even if Jesus is doing amazing things? Because of his crazy ideas about wealth and money. And his criticizing those things as being a bad thing that takes people away from the kingdom of God. And because of Jesus' radical inclusion of undesirable folks. Women, Samaritans, sick people, poor people, tax collectors, sinners traitors, stuff like that. Because of those things, they're all opposing him. And so Jesus says, oh my gosh, you're all opposing me now. You're not joining this kingdom movement. You're not joining in and celebrating what God is doing in the world in the last chapter. And why are you not doing that? Because you're lovers of money. And so you guys, you can't, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and wealth. And Let me paint you a picture of what that actually looks like. So let me tell you a parable, an imaginary story about the afterlife. Again, we need to be careful about not taking that parable, like, like necessarily, literally, at least not right away. Jesus isn't saying, oh, here is exactly what's going to happen in the afterlife or whatever. He's painting them a picture of you're living this way now and you're not getting into the kingdom. You're not celebrating and taking care of people and showing favor. And so this is what a future looks like. For those of you who are doing that, you're not going to, you can't expect to one day magically wake up and join the kingdom if you won't magically wake up now. Even if someone comes back resurrected from the dead, and Jesus has already talked about his own resurrection and stuff like that. Um, even if someone comes back resurrected from the dead, it's, it's not going to be enough to convince you. You need to give up serving the God of wealth and serve God 
the God we have instead. Tough, tough words. So here we go. Let's go into our lo-fi questions. This has been a long episode. Thank you for sticking with me. Um, what is God like? Lo-fi question number one. In Luke 16, um, if God is a character and if Jesus is the son of God, is therefore connected to that and is a character himself, what kind of God do we have? What is that God like? Well, God has some tough things to say about human selfishness. <laughs> um, both parables told in the story has a, has a theme where it's expected that persons who have things have a responsibility to share those things with others and to be generous and that they would be rewarded if they're generous, even for bad reasons um, or for good reasons. Um, and that people who aren't generous for it or with it or with what they have um, aren't rewarded or at the very worst, we'll experience some pretty heavy consequences. Um, that God is a God who gives unfairly to people. Um, if, if, if you believe that Jesus is God, at least as the story presents it, so we're kind of presuming that just as a storytelling device, um, Jesus is here, God, promoting a way of living where things are not, things do not belong to people, but that people do belong to people. Like what you have, the things you have aren't yours, they're God's, but you are so responsible for other people that the people, you should see other people as yours to take care of, to be responsible for, to welcome back, even at your own expense, that you cannot enjoy comfort and luxury at the expense of other people experiencing agony and pain. And God's harshest words for judgment are all about how people get and use their money and their power. It's not reserved for vices and stuff like that, that we normally sometimes slip into a place, at least maybe any, as even other places in the Bible might lead us to thinking that God here in Luke 16 has harsher words for judgment about how people use money and power than about how they participate or behave in vices and things like that. Um, because when God talks about his kingdom, it's, a place where the line in the sand is over whether or not you're going to serve wealth or not. Um, God seems to take wealth and economic status very, very seriously. Um, also, number two, God is a God in the story who has, who feels and offers great mercy for people who are suffering. In the parable, Lazarus, who experienced so much agony, is invited to be closest to Abraham, to lay and to dine with him. Um, I'm not satisfied and you might not be satisfied that this only comes after Lazarus dies in the story. I'm like, Hey, where was the mercy while Lazarus was alive? Um, but at least in the end, Lazarus will be welcomed into the kingdom. Um, despite of Lazarus's theological beliefs, as far as we know, despite Lazarus's behaviors or how he used his resources at a time to end up poor or something like that, God just has mercy on how that person experienced so much pain that God welcomes that person to be welcomed and comforted at the closest place of favor. Um, also, um, God in Luke 16 is in the work of flipping over the scheme of the world regarding social status and wealth. Um, in life and in death, Jesus is teaching that this change of, of the way that we look at wealth and the way that we behave towards others needs to change now isn't just something that changes only in the future. Like Jesus does use a parable of the afterlife, but he's talking about how people should be behaving now. And that again, connects to a very deep Lucan theme 
um, that begins with, with Mary's song, you know, singing about high and low things. Um, and again, let's, let's, before we move on from the God question, God in this story through Jesus shows himself, or I'm sorry, uh, I use gender language about God. God is showing that God is definitely interested in the work of really going after his audience, whether they are his opponents or not. He's not shaming them. God is in the business of offering a new way forward for them. God wants people to repent and join the kingdom. God is not dismissive or vindictive against people. All of Jesus's words and teachings are trying to be persuasive towards his opponents, which is really interesting. Lo-fi question number two, what are people like? People in, in, in these stories, it's mostly parables. Um, so we don't get a lot of actual human like interaction together, but people sometimes do the right things for the wrong reasons. They are sometimes shifty and crafty, like the manager in the first parable, as Jesus characterizes them. And an interesting note here, um, God seems to think that he can do something good, even with people who do the right things for the wrong reasons. Um, All throughout the Hebrew scriptures, and in a lot of other ancient Near Eastern culture, and even in a lot of folklore um, through the medieval period and stuff like that, you get characters that are trickster characters. Um who are actually rewarded for being tricky when they end up almost by accident doing something good. And so you have people like Jacob, who um, in the Old Testament lies and tricks people and wears a costume to trick his own father and stuff like that. Things that would be on necessarily, if you had a list of things that are good and bad to do, would be on the bad side, but end up being blessed by the good things that that actually ends up bringing into the world. It's, it's, um, it's a little more morally ambiguous than often we would think. Um, and so at least in Jesus's parable, the, the, the tricky character is actually rewarded, which is just kind of really interesting for doing the right thing and making God look good for the wrong reasons. Um, Cause it was more for his own personal intention than for, for, for helping out the master. Um, what else are, are people like um, in Jesus's parable about Lazarus, people suffer. There are some people in the world who can't provide for their own needs, or there are people who, whether they can provide for it or not, are left in a place of of pain and suffering. That's what some people are 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 like, and people experience in the world. The Bible in Luke sixteen doesn't shy away from that, but Jesus has something to say about those very persons and how God views them. Um, on the other hand, um, people in this story could be like the rich man, um, can walk over and across and past others every day as they go in and out of their gates. Um, people can be very selfish. People can be very greedy to the point where they will allow awful suffering to continue on in the world. Um, people sometimes in the book of Luke 16 will want to be masters in heaven or in hell. Um, And that's a problem. Um, But um, Luke paints a very stark portrayal of, of, of being very straightforward about that. Um, So those are the kind of things that what people are like. 
People sometimes do the right things. People sometimes do the right things for good reasons. People sometimes do the right things for wrong reasons. People often suffer. Sometimes people allow awful suffering. Um, so why these stories? Why Luke 16? Why um, did Jesus tell these stories? Why did his audience and his followers remember these stories? Why did they tell each other these stories? Why did they tell them so often that when Luke wrote his book, he heard them? Why did Luke, amongst all the stories he could write in a book, write these ones down? Why did people keep reading Luke 16 for now thousands of years? Um, what might people have found in them that's so important or that was good? Um, if we remember that from Luke's audience, um, they were likely a people who were under persecution and suffering, people who on the Jewish side has just experienced um, the apocalypse of their people, um, of Rome going in and just crushing the capital city and tearing the temple down. Um, and they've lost everything and lost family. And, um, you know, um, and so what would this story maybe offer suffering people? It shows them a God who sees their suffering, who understands their suffering, who is in solidarity with them, because those are the people that God seems to think are, are closer to the kingdom of God and that will see, receive favor and mercy from God. Um, that God is interested in showing them compassion. And so I wonder if they kind of held on to the story. It's a story where um, the rich and powerful people who cause suffering or allow suffering to happen of others don't win in the end. And maybe they found something within that get, that gave them some hope or that um, at least painted a picture where God sees and understands their suffering, even if they will continue to experience more suffering within this life but that at least God is kind of in solidarity with them within the midst of their suffering. Um, and yet for people within that context, for people who are being made to suffer and are being opposed and people who are being persecuted and stuff like that, maybe this, these stories teach them how to give them something meaningful of how do we approach a group of people who would make themselves our enemies, people who want to maybe destroy us, people who want to oppose us, people who just badger us and oppose us at every step. If they follow Jesus's example in the story, they will continue to fight for and invite those people to find a new way forward so they can also experience the mercy and favor of God in God's kingdom. Um, people at the time might have gotten that message. Jesus's followers. And so maybe that's why they told this story to each other. They're like, oh, remember the rich man and Lazarus, that even if we are being hurt and persecuted, that we need to make sure that we that just as Jesus reached out to his enemies, that we do too. Um, or that if we ever find ourselves in a place where we are not being hurt and persecuted, that what we have is something that we need to share and give to others. Because what we have isn't ours, but the people around us that we see every day, God thinks that we have a responsibility to them. And so here is a stark warning that we should not forget that. Um, I mean, because history, we say, is often told by winners, and therefore even church and religious history is told by winners, and winners are often people who have wealth and resources and stuff like that. So how strange is it then that they would keep Luke 16 and not find a way somewhere along the process to cross it out or to forget it or let it be forgotten by history? How strange is it that this story has lasted this long, a story that by its nature, really confronts winners. 
And granted, I don't think this is the most popular story in the Bible. Odds are you maybe, even if you've gone to church your whole life, you maybe have never heard a sermon about the rich man and Lazarus or about the the, the tricky, squandering, shrewd manager. But here it is in Luke 16. And it challenges us. And so on one hand, to people on the bottom, it's a, it, offered, it maybe offered them a message of reassurance and hope. On the other hand, for people on the high point, maybe they found a challenge and a criticism. And for some reason, something about Jesus and the way that they had been raised to follow him or been taught to follow him. Um, they saw something so important that they decided to keep that challenge around. Fascinating stuff. Um, we'll dig into that maybe a little bit more um, as we go into the lo-fi kitchen. But oh my gosh, you guys, this is one of our longest episodes in a while. But that's because there is a lot of content um, and some tricky parts that we kind of, I wanted to make sure to really dig into. Because again, if you're like me, maybe you've read and passed over these stories for so long and not really heard it within its context of Jesus's larger story in the book of Luke. And so maybe you were like, I don't know what these are. I'm just going to skip on to you know, the next part, because it's a lot easier to understand or, um, or, or something like that. So I, I, I wanted to kind of dig into these a little bit deeper than normal. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, I appreciate everything you do. Um, if you're a listener to this podcast, uh, a lot of you guys over the long kind of hiatus, um, that I was on, um, took time to shoot me a quick message and just say, Hey, um, I hope new episodes are coming or, Hey, I hope you're doing all right. Or, uh, Hey, I really enjoyed this episode. Or I had a couple of people actually say, Hey, I'm kind of glad you haven't been putting out new episodes. It's given me a chance to finally catch up because your podcasts are long and I don't have a lot of time to listen and I'm catching up. So thank you, uh, to a lot of you who did that. Thank you to, uh, to Lori and to Rick and to Shelly and Elizabeth and Steve and, uh, and, and John and a couple of the rest of you guys who reached out recently and have just been really encouraging. I hope that you guys are still getting something good out of this. I hope that you've been enjoying it. Um, and that whether you are religious or not, that this has uh, helped you kind of at least understand what's going on a little bit in this part of the Bible. Um, whether you draw anything out for that, that that makes a difference in your life or something like that, um, th- that would be great, but that's kind of not the intention. I just I just like the Bible so much that I hope you, you see what I see in it and that the story you see, is is kind of beautiful and interesting. I mean, we'll dig into this more in the kitchen, but here in Luke 16, God comes to earth and uses the short amount of time he has to stand against very certain opponents and to teach a very particular way in the world. And this is what we find God talking about and being concerned about. That's an interesting question. Um, so thank you for listening. Um, if, uh, if, if you have the chance, please reach out to me, shoot me a message, something like that. Um, and let me know what you thought. If you were challenged by this as well, this, this passage crushes me. Um, if, uh, if you found something encouraging in it, if you found me not being very clear or not doing a good job, if you're still left with a lot of questions, if you think that I did do all right and you want to send a note of encouragement or whatever. Um, I, I just love to hear from people cause it's, it's nice to know that, uh, people are listening and, and getting something good or bad out of this. Um, and mostly just because I, I like to talk to folks. This is why I do a podcast and talk to myself because I'm hopefully going to have more conversations with you about this because I like talking. Um, so be well, take care of each other. Um, take care. I'll see you next time. 
everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net, and that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again, so at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it, so thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.